I would invite you this morning to turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, uh, you can follow along if you grab one of the, the pew Bibles that, that should be in one of the seats nearby. I would encourage you to make sure that you're testing all that I say and evaluate the scriptures for yourself and see if it's, see if it's true. Isaiah chapter 6. Well, we are now in the second week of a new series where we as a church are uh, studying the most central theme of the Bible, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would argue that the entire Bible is, is organized around one central idea, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, the good news that Christ Jesus saves sinners. Every book, every chapter, every verse, every word is, is anticipating or explaining or celebrating the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the whole reason that Jesus came. And so it's worth our attention. Two weeks ago, we, we began looking at this concept, and, and I would invite you that if you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to go back. It's available online, or you can get a CD up at the church office, because in that, I lay what I think is the, the foundation for all of this. And I, I would encourage you, if you missed that, uh, to, to go track that down. But, but two weeks ago, we discussed why. Why it is so important for us as Christians, for us as a church, to study the gospel. Now, I know that it's tempting to think, hey, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I already know the gospel, right? I, that's, I couldn't be a Christian if I didn't know the gospel, so, so why are we spending you know, weeks and weeks, weeks on this? And, and I know that's tempting. We may be tempted to think, you know, the gospel is for non-Christians, people who, who aren't made right with God, or maybe, maybe the gospel is for new Christians, baby Christians who are, who are growing in their faith. I, I'm ready to move on to more advanced things. I want some theology. I want some meat, right? I want, I want to study. I want, I want to learn. I want, I want something deeper than the gospel. Well, I've been trying to persuade you that from the Bible, that that is an unhelpful, incorrect attitude. In fact, I'm convinced that it's a dangerous attitude because I believe that, that if we consider the gospel to be elementary, then it will stunt our growth as Christians. It will hinder or stunt our growth as Christians. In fact, another way to put it, I think, is, would be like this. I'm convinced that the more deeply you understand and appreciate the gospel, the more you will grow to be like Christ. The more deeply you understand and appreciate the gospel, the more you will grow to be like Christ. I don't think this is my idea. I think that this is a, a biblical idea. And so last week, we, we looked at one of the places that we can see this in the scriptures in, chap in Romans chapter 1, Paul, was, Paul, the author of Romans, was 
very excited to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, the church in Rome, specifically Christians who were in Rome. He was excited to preach the gospel even though they were already Christians. Why? Well, as we saw last time, it's because the gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for Christians. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, as if you master those and then move on to something else more advanced. The gospel is not the ABCs of the faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. The gospel is not just the door for the Christian life. It's not just how you get in. It's the room. It's the road. It's the way. The gospel is the Christian life. And the reason that Paul was so excited to preach the gospel to the the Christians who were there is because the gospel is the power of God for transformation. Do you see that there? For it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And we saw specifically that the gospel is for transformation. Paul is saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save us and it's the power of God to change us. Now, most of us understand that first part, right? We get that the gospel is how a person is made right with God. We get that the gospel is how we are saved. I was reading this week that this word for salvation is not just the first initial part. It's the entire process of how God saves us. The gospel is not just how we get justified. The gospel is also how we are sanctified. The gospel is not just how we get saved. It is how we get changed. Do you want to change? Do you want to grow Do you want to be more loving and more patient? Do you want to see victory over sin? The gospel is the means for change. Now, for most Christians, I don't think we understand this power source. We think we see the gospel more as a piece of information, not electricity, not power. Last week, we we talked about this, how for most Christians, the gospel is sort of like a coin in a gumball machine, right? Anybody want a piece of gum now? Makes you want a piece of gum. The gospel is it's like a coin in, in a gumball machine that hasn't dropped yet. Do you remember? We, we have believed the gospel and we're saved, right? So that's good. But we haven't really realized the, the life-changing power of the gospel in our lives. The gospel coin is in, and that's good. That means, you know, we're, we're, we're saved, but we're still waiting for the coin to drop. We're waiting for the power to be released in our lives so that fruit will, will come out. And I've offered this chart, which I think is helpful to explain the, uh, the dynamic of the gospel. It's not the, it's not, it doesn't explain all of it, but I think that, that it can be helpful. And it's something that I, that I refer to as, as the gospel grid. And we mentioned this last time, but I want to walk us through again, because I think it shows us uh, how the gospel changes us, how the gospel works to change us. Now, this dotted line here on the left, this represents time before a person comes to Christ. It's time as it is passing before you come to Christ. Now, it's a flat line because before you're a believer in Christ, there's no growth. There's no, there's no 
change. But then something happens. God begins to work in your life, and you are saved. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes, and you are converted. You see that you are a sinner. And what that means is you realize you're not as holy as you thought you were. There's problems in your life and in the way that you live and in the way that you think. We call this realizing the gap. The gap. The gap between your sin and God's righteousness. The gap between God's holy law and the way you actually live. The gap between what God requires of you and what you can actually pay. The gap is significant. And since you realize that you can't pay for your sin on your own, when you're saved, you are trusting in Christ to bridge the gap. The cross bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so through faith, through faith in Christ's work on the cross, we are saved. This is the story of the gospel. However, at conversion, when, when you first come to faith in Christ, when you first begin your journey of faith, we have a very limited view of our sinfulness. And we have a very limited view of God's holiness. You could say that the cross is small. The cross is small to us. It, it, it still saves. It's still sufficient for salvation. It's still valuable to us, but it's small. What I mean by that is our awareness of it is small. Our awareness of God's mercy is small. And so what happens is that, that, that we, uh, our love for Him is small. Our praise for Him is small. Our desire to obey Him is weak and faint. Our, our praise, our worship is small, and so we don't, we don't grow very much. But the more that we grow in the Christian faith, the more that we learn about God, and the more that we read the Bible, and the more that we're instructed in holiness, the more we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, and the more we grow in an awareness of our sinfulness. We begin to realize that God is more holy than we actually thought, and we also begin to realize that we are more sinful than we actually thought. And the more we realize how big the gap is, the more that distance grows, the more we realize how amazing the cross is. As the gap grows, our appreciation for the cross grows, and, and it gets bigger and bigger. And the more that we grow in our understanding of God's holiness, the more we, uh, we appreciate the gospel. The more we appreciate the gospel. And the more we appreciate the gospel, that means the more we love Christ. And the more we love Christ, the more we will find power to love others. And the more we love others and the more we love Christ, the more glory we give to God. That's called growth. That's called Christian growth. Growth comes, I'm arguing, as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness and awareness of our own sinfulness. And I want to talk about those two points today. How do we grow in our awareness of God's holiness? 
And how do we grow in our awareness of our own sinfulness? I know of no better place to do this than Isaiah chapter 6. So if you will look down with me, or look up on the screen, a familiar passage of Scripture, and let's read God's Word together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and then with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Will you please pray with me, and let's ask for God's blessing on His Word. Father, it's a... It's a It's a scary thing to try to speak of your holiness. How ill-equipped am I for such a task? It's also also hard to speak of our sinfulness because I too am a sinner. So Father, I'm asking that you would do today what no man could do. Would you by your Spirit Move in the hearts of of the people in this room. Move in the hearts of your church. Help us to see and understand your word. Father, I pray that today that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten, for no one needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. So let your word take up residence in our heart and let it bear fruit in our lives. I pray. Ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Neither you nor I appreciate the holiness of God. We do not rightly appreciate the holiness of God. There are many reasons for this. One reason is that we have never seen Him. We've never seen Him. But Isaiah has. In this famous text, God gives Isaiah a vision of the holiness of God, and it almost kills him. If we read this text carefully, we'll realize how much of God Isaiah actually saw. You have to to read it carefully to notice, though, because in verse 1, all Isaiah is able to do is to describe the Lord's robe. Whatever it was that was covering much of the glory of God, that's all Isaiah was able to describe. How big it was, how bright it was, how beautiful it was. That's all, that's all he could do. Presumably because he couldn't look up much higher. He is face first on the ground. 
and he looks up enough to see the robe. This is a lot like Moses' experience when he saw the Lord, or when he saw the back of the Lord. If you read that in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, all Moses is able to do, basically, is able to describe the ground that's around him. His face is also down on the pavement. As a counselor, I sometimes have the opportunity to, to talk with folks who are experiencing symptoms that we often describe as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. These, these, are, these, are, these are folks who have experienced some sort of awful traumatic experience that has altered their life. Many times it's something like combat or or uh, something that's particularly gruesome. Maybe it's a, a, a wife who has seen her husband take his own life. Something that is very traumatic that changes their life. I think that we could say that Isaiah had a spiritually traumatic experience, and his life was changed forever. Once Isaiah came into the presence of the holiness of God, it ruined him. It ruined him. You can hear, you can hear in his pain-filled cry here in, here in verse 5. He says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm ruined. You can hear it. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes, my eyes, they've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was permanently and forever traumatized by the momentary sight of the robe which covered the Lord. But his shock was not just the sight of God. It was not just the sight of God. Isaiah suffered a moral shock. It was as if he looked in the mirror and was terrified of what he saw. He realized it led to his personal ruin. As soon as Isaiah saw God, as soon as he saw him, he immediately realized how massive the gap was between God's holiness and his sinfulness. We could call this Isaiah's trauma. Realizing how far God is from him, how unlike him he is. And Isaiah perfectly expresses the, the feeling of every man who has, who has realized that he's hiding and disguised and, and realized that he has finally discovered himself under all of his pride and his disguising and his masks and his fake fakeness. When all the pretenses and excuses are stripped away, when all of our deeds are completely exposed, when we stand totally naked before the Lord, nothing to cover us. Our righteousness is like rags. Nothing to cover us. And he says, I'm ruined. Woe is me, I'm ruined. Isaiah expresses the, the terror of a man who, who realizes how morally bankrupt and how totally exposed he is once he is confronted by the holy, white hotness of the glory of God. 
This is what author and teacher R.C. Sproul once called the trauma of holiness. The trauma of holiness. And it's the trauma that each one of us desperately needs to experience in order to appreciate the gospel. Boys and girls, if, you are, if you're with us today, we're glad that you're here. And I'd like to speak to you and say that if you listen to your parents and your teachers, and if they're talking to you about the Bible, and if they're talking to you about the gospel, and they seem excited, and you think, what's the big deal? It's because you haven't seen how much you need God yet. It's because you haven't had that experience where you realize how sinful you are. And so we're praying for you. And your parents and your teachers will keep teaching you that we would see ourselves as we are. Each one of us needs a vision of God, to see God as he actually is. And we also need a vision of ourselves to see us as we actually are. And so that's what I'd like to try to explain this morning, those two things, God as he is, and then ourselves as we are. To see God, a vision of God, let's think about that first. One of the things that the Bible is exceptionally clear about is that God is profoundly and totally unlike us. He is unique. He's a holy being. Even though he's a person, he is totally unique. We are not to compare God to anything. We are not to treat him like some ordinary being, but like one who is utterly and radically different from us. This is what Moses did. When, when Moses uh, approached the burning bush, God spoke to him. Do you remember what he said? Don't come near. Don't come near. Take off your sandals. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Moses did what any one of us would have done. He hid. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. The ground here was holy. Why? Not, not because the ground was special. Not because it, not, there was nothing special about the ground. And there was nothing special about, about Moses. Or there was nothing especially dangerous about the burning bush in itself, right? The, what was dangerous was that God was there. What was special was that God was there. That's what made it holy. And so Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. God stands over us as perfectly and totally morally pure. Without even a hint or shadow of impurity. He is so morally pure that the Bible says that God is not even able. It is not possible for him to even look upon evil. We read about this in one place in the book of Habakkuk. A fun word to say, Habakkuk, right? And we read about God who whose eyes are purer, so pure that they cannot see evil, and they cannot even look at wrong. 
Church, it is not possible for us to, to grasp the full scope of the holiness of God. We are very small. We are limited, finite human beings, and we, can't, we, and we don't have a way to do this, right? You, you can't do the trick that I often try to do. You can't, you can't simply think about something or, or someone else that is very, 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 very pure, very, very, very pure, and then simply raise that concept to the highest degree that you can imagine and then times it by infinity. That's not enough. It's still not enough. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. That's not enough. It is infinitely beyond even our own concepts of infinite holiness. Hard to track with me? God's, it's big, right? That's my point. We can't track with it. And this is one of the things that I think helps explain to us why God's holy law is so overwhelming. Why His commandments are so devastating. The standard is just so high. Because it helps us see how totally averse to sin God is. Totally averse to sin. I think one of the best ways to, to see this and to think about this is, is in the Garden of Eden. You, you remember what happened in, in the Garden of Eden? All it took was one single sin. And eventually billions of people are banished to hell. One sin and cancer comes into the world. One sin banished from the presence of God. All of the suffering, all of the sickness, all of the death comes into the world because of one sin. One rebellious act. One single act of obedience. Boys and girls, when your parents tell you it's important to obey your parents, remember this. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings pain. All of the suffering in the world is because of disobedience. All it took was one sin. Hell is not an overreaction to sin. Hell is the perfectly just signal of how totally averse God is to sin. And you see, just like Isaiah, once we have a vision of God, once we begin to see God as He is, something begins to happen. We begin to see ourselves as we are. That's what happened to Isaiah. When you read the Bible, what, what happens is that when a human sees the glory of God, one of two things happens. He either dies or he sees his own sinfulness. The, the glory of God either kills us or it functions as a mirror by which we can see ourselves as we actually are. This is what happened with Isaiah. He immediately begins to confess sin. I find it so interesting that he's confessing the way he talks and the way his people talk. Yeah, that's something we often don't even think of as important. Isaiah sees the glory of God and he immediately begins to confess his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people with unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A.W. Tozer once said, 
until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we're not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We've learned how to live with our unholiness. You see, the problem for me and the problem for you and the problem for all of us is that we don't compare our lives to God. We don't compare our lives to God as the standard. We, that's too much, so we compare our lives to the people around us. Right? We, we change the grading scale. We, we adjust it. So we comfort ourselves by thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And we end up thinking we're not that bad. But when God looks upon our lives, when God sees our hearts, when God looks upon our nature, His judgment is crushing. The Scriptures teach us that, that we should be far more humble and far more suspicious of ourselves We'll talk about this in more depth, but one of my favorite places to see this is, is in the book of Jeremiah, where, where Jeremiah is describing the condition of the human heart. Now, I'm not talking about the, the actual organ, your heart. It, it's, it's, think about it as the control center of human life. Your control center, what makes you tick, what makes you do what you do and think what you think and like what you like, that, that's your heart according to the Bible. And in Jeremiah, it says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Above everything in creation, above all things in creation, our hearts are the sickest thing. Our hearts, the, the human heart, the control center of man, is desperately diseased and sick, even beyond our understanding. You and I have within us, in our natural state, hearts that are contaminated and sick with sin. So much so that we read in Genesis, when God looked on the world, He saw that all of man's desires were evil. All of their thoughts, they were naturally bent towards evil. All of our thoughts, all of our motives and deeds apart from God are infected with sin. This is a major problem, and one of the biggest parts of the problem is that you and I struggle to see it. Because we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We are far better. I'm so much better at seeing sin in other people than me. Right? Very good at that. And you are too. We're so much better at seeing the sin of others than seeing our own sin because our hearts trick us. So we just read that they are deceitful above everything else. And the problem here is that this leads you and I to have an inaccurate view a small view of our sin. And if we have a small view of our sin, if we have an inaccurate view of ourselves, what happens is that we can't have a right view of the gospel. We minimize the gospel. We could call this, I call it the small gospel. You could call it the truncated gospel, if you like that word, it's probably more accurate, but let's call it the small gospel. Instead of growing in the awareness of the gap, 
Okay, what happens is, is we, we've bridged the gap with the cross of Christ, but instead of the cross growing and, and growing in our awareness, what happens is we minimize God's holiness. And then we minimize our own sin. Both of those are small. We don't see ourselves growing, and we're not growing in more awareness of our own sin. We're not growing in our own awareness of God's holiness. And so we minimize these things. And what that means is that the cross stays small. The cross stays small. Let's think first about this minimizing God's holiness. The temptation is, is that for most of us, we, we are, I think that we don't take the Bible seriously. We don't read it with enough reverence. We, we, we read what the Bible says, but we don't really take it as the actual standard by which God measures our lives. We downplay how much God hates our sin. I was just, just reading yesterday in the book of Leviticus about a man in Israel who blasphemed the name of God. He spoke the name of God, and God killed him. God does not make light of our sin. When the Bible says that one who is covetous, right? This is a proper sin, a respectable sin, one that we don't talk too much about or worry too much about. When the Bible says that one is covetous, that means that he will not enter the kingdom of God. And we immediately think, oh, that's not what he really means. That's, that it, surely, it's not that, surely it's not that bad, right? I mean, sure, maybe I wish I lived in my brother's house, but I mean, that doesn't hurt anybody. Or, or, or what about gossiping? I mean, gossiping can't be that big of a deal. That second look at her as she walks by, that doesn't hurt anybody. We minimize our sin. And we minimize God's law. We downplay the seriousness of sin and of God's holy law. But we're also tempted to minimize our own sinfulness. To minimize our own sinfulness. There's a variety of ways that, that we do this, but one of the ways, I think, is that we defend ourselves. We defend ourselves. How do you respond when someone points out sin in your life? What do you do when someone approaches you and criticizes you? Do you defend yourself? What do you do when your spouse points out a way that you may be falling into sin? Do you defend yourself to make your sin smaller? Or what about faking it? We talked a lot about this at at life action, about wearing masks, faking it. Do you strive to keep up appearances so that people think that you're a good, respectable Christian? Have you ever come to church just so that people would see you here? Or have you ever not come, have you ever not not come to church so that people wouldn't think you're skipping? Have, have, you, have you ever worried about what other people think about you? Are you devastated when you find out that someone doesn't like you or that someone has said something about you? We tend to fake. What about hiding? We tend to hide. Do you try to conceal parts of your life, especially the bad stuff? One of the ways you can know if you do this is whether or not you confess sin to other people. If you're not confessing your sin to other people, then you're hiding. Right? We, we are so prone to try to conceal the bad stuff. 
Are you ashamed of things that you've done so much that you don't let other people see you? Do you keep people at arm's length? Sure, you'll talk about football and hunting, but will you talk about spiritual things? We tend to hide. What about this one? Exaggerating. We tend to exaggerate. Do you struggle like I do to, in a way that you talk more highly about yourself than you should, just to get attention? Do you tend to exaggerate your good qualities while downplaying your bad ones? And then with the other people, it's opposite, right? Do you tend to exaggerate other people's struggles while downplaying their strengths? We're so prone to exaggerate, to make ourselves feel good. What about blaming? How do you respond with anger? Is it someone else's fault? Do you blame your anger on someone else, your spouse, your circumstances, your children, your teacher, your boss? Do you blame others? Is it always someone else's fault? Is it hard for you, like it is for me, to recognize that you always have a log in your eye while your brother has a speck in his eye in the midst of conflict? Do you struggle to see your sin as a bigger deal than someone else's? What about downplaying? Do you tend not to give much weight to your own sin? Do you ever say things like, well, nobody's perfect? Or I'm just human, right? I'm just a guy. Do you think that your sin isn't that bad? Or that maybe your struggle with sin is normal? As a result, what happens is, is that we don't give our sin the weight it deserves or the attention it deserves or the treatment it deserves. And we become completely frustrated when other people point out our sin. Completely frustrated because what happens is if people try to point out our sin and we freak out and we defend and we deny and we exaggerate and we blame, then people won't come to us anymore. Yet the Bible says that those who love correction are wise. It's so true for the believer because we understand what the cross has said about us. We'll save that for, for another, another week. But we get frustrated when other people criticize us or, or point out our sin. You see, all of these are tactics that, that we have been perfecting since we were children. It's a, part of our, it's a part of the way that we interact with the world. They almost seem to be social skills. And we all use them to do the same thing, to convince ourselves that we're not that bad. And if we're not that bad, then our cross isn't that big. And our gospel is small. So how do we avoid this? Well, we're going to talk about this in much more depth in coming weeks, but I, can't, I don't feel like I can just leave you without thinking about how we can, we can avoid this. And to put it as simply as I, as I know how to do, we battle this with Bible reading. Reading the scriptures, hearing God's word preached, constantly exposing ourselves to, ourselves to what God is like. This is why I'm encouraging you to saturate your life in the Bible. Because when you do, when you read the Bible, when you open the Bible carefully and humbly, if you, come, if you don't come humbly, it's not going to help that much. But if you open the Bible humbly, two things happen. 
Number one, you will constantly be reading about how big and great and glorious God is. All the time, all over the book, it's constantly there. How glorious God is, how high His law is, how wonderful His ways are, how impeccable His character is, how great His might is, how much He loves righteousness and hates pride. You'll see it over and over and over again. You'll see God's glory. And you'll also see, the second thing you'll see is your sinfulness. Constantly, I'm seeing as I read the Bible, I don't measure up. I don't love him enough. I don't love others as myself. I don't love my wife like Christ loves us. I fail again and again. And what happens? As I read the scriptures, the gap is growing. God's holiness is growing in my view, and my sinfulness is growing in my view. When you read the Bible with a humble heart, you will realize God is more holy than you thought, and you are more sinful than you think. And then what happens? The cross grows. Your appreciation for Jesus grows. Your love for the gospel grows. And all of the fruit of the Spirit, all of the fruit of the Christian life begins to come out. The coin drops when we see the holiness of God and see the sinfulness of ourself. This morning, we have the opportunity to take communion together. And so as we transition into a time of communion, let me invite you to now pray with me. Fathers, as we consider your word together, as we consider Isaiah's vision. Lord, we feel so unable and it feels so hard to understand your glory, especially with such small words. So, Father, I pray, would you supernaturally enable us by your Spirit to see your glory as you are and to see our sinfulness in ourselves as we are, not to the point of despair but that we would cry out for help and seek the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that you have, when you ate with the disciples, you left a a symbol for us, reminding us of the work that you have done on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that as we take communion together this morning, that you would call to our minds the preciousness of Christ. I ask this in your name. Amen.